this podcast, Drew Conway from Alluvium talks about his journey in creating socially responsible data science practice. So stay tuned. So welcome everyone to Future of Data podcast. Uh, today we have with us guest Drew Conway. And this is one of the podcasts that I really aspire to do because it brings us some interesting folks talking about um, interesting perspective. And, and, and I've been a huge fan of Drew uh, and his work. A brief bio and, and then we'll chit chat about what, what I like uh, particularly about his background. So Drew is a CEO and founder of Alluvium, is a leading expert uh, in the application of computational met- methods to social and behavioral problems at large scale. Drew has been writing and speaking about role of data and the discipline of data science in the industry, government and academics for several years. Drew has advised and consulted companies across many industries, ranging from fledgling startups to Fortune 100 companies, as well as academic institutions and government agencies at all levels. Drew started his career in counterterrorism as a computational social scientist in the US intelligence community. Um, with that, Drew, welcome to the podcast. Vishal, it's great to be here. Thank you. Beautiful. So let's um, start by talking about your journey. Uh, I think it, it's fascinating. So yeah, if you can walk us through. Absolutely. Um, I think, as you probably know from speaking to many data scientists, it, it has a sort of winding road and, and not cer- certainly not one that I would recommend for others to take. Um, but, you know, when I was starting out in my career, I knew two things. One is I had an aptitude and interest in computer science and mathematics, but in particular, thinking about how to use those tools to study human behavior and how to think mm-hmm. about how people make choices. Um, I was actually um, very much an oddball even as an undergraduate because I double majored in both computer science and um, political science, which is not a typical combination that you see. Um, but it was it was so atypical and I had a um, I had an interest in this particular um, area that my senior thesis as a as an undergraduate was actually uh, I forget the title, but the idea of it was I wanted to be able to study terrorism networks using peer-to-peer file sharing networks as a sort of structural base of that. Right. And so I'll be dating myself by by saying this, but you know I went to college when things like Nutella and LimeWire and Napster were still around and kicking. Uh, and so I used uh, data collected from those networks to try to model out what those network, what those um, file sharing networks look like, and then compared it to some open source data that was available on particular um, terrorist networks uh, back in the early 2000s. Uh, and so uh, as the story goes, I wrote that paper and then ended up getting invited to a conference at West Point as a, as a senior in college that was, I think, it was sort of ostensibly about law and technology and terrorism. And when I got there, or when I got there, I didn't realize this, but ultimately what I came to find out is essentially this was a recruiting um, event for the intelligence community. Basically everyone, mm-hmm. there was a bunch of students from various universities and from all of the um, uh, service universities and they were being invited to present and then ultimately get recruited into this world. And so that kicked me off into what ultimately became a four and a half year career in, in the Intel community. So I, um, I had a, a really fascinating job, particularly at the time. So I entered the workforce in the sort of the mid 
2000s, right as uh, what we now consider this kind of commodity stack of big data tools, you know, things like Hadoop and being able to do, you know, map reduce jobs over large amounts of data. That was all pretty new, but I was able to learn and experiment with those tools in an arena where we had access us to some of the most fascinating and, and fundamentally challenging data problems. You know, I was um, in my role split between many different um, kinds of topics, but most of the time what I was doing was kind of building custom integrated software and sort of uh, software enabled methodologies for supporting forward deployed special ops teams. So folks who are out um, in, you know, principally the, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan theaters, but we service folks who are serving worldwide and, you know, they had uh, simple problems uh, to state, but challenging problems to actually execute with data. Things like, if I go into this house, will I find the person I'm looking for? If we walk down the street, is it safe? Um, and we had a fantastically rich data set to think about those problems, but we also had real visceral feedback loops on the quality of our work. Um, so I learned a tremendous amount I learned, um, you know, the value of skepticism in all of the work that you do, um, and and certainly the value of of these tools. And and so I got to the point in that career where I knew that I had sort of reached the point of needing to go back to school and fill out all the gaps that I had in my training, which were particularly. Um, you know, porous within the kind of statistical methods, right? I'd been a computer scientist and a social and a social scientist, and so I knew I had I had some some substantive expertise and, and ideas about some things, and I had some sort of technical skills with the with with technology, but I still didn't have that core method methodological focus. So ended up going to leaving DC and coming to New York to do a at NYU, um, but a PhD in the social sciences. In fact, my PhD is in political science. So ultimately decided not to pursue a technical discipline, but a social science discipline, because at the core of what I was interested in was still human decision-making, right? I was really interested in how people make choices. And as I'd kind of grown up through that early part of my career and now leaving the Intel community to go to academia, I think one of the things that I was most excited about was this sort of now there was this massive access to human decision-making data through social media and e-commerce and all of these things that we now again kind of take for granted as these kind of primordial data for understanding these things. I was like, oh, I can go study this stuff. Uh, so I came to New York and started doing my work. Um, but it was also a great time to be in New York City um, for someone like me because lots of things were changing. It was actually a particularly bad time for New York. It was a particularly bad time for the economy, right? This was in mm. um, late 2008. So we had this financial crisis kind of collapsing around us. Um, but I was fortunate because I had the cover of graduate school, right? So I had mm. the safety of being in graduate mm. school, um, but had the opportunity to now interact with folks in the New York City community who were either coming from a financial services or media um, or, um, you know, product background, uh, and people who are working in, you know, then kind of nascent startup community or, or other larger technology companies. And all of us were kind of coming together because there was all of this change happening in the marketplace. Mm. Uh, and so kind of through, you know, opportunity and will managed to insert myself into that community and, you know, made some wonderful friends, some deep connections, and ultimately had the opportunity to kind of build a, um, a kind of secondary career beyond the one that I was building in, in my work as a graduate student 
thinking about data science and, and how this new discipline could interact as a kind of profession as well as a, a, as a, um, a path of study. Um, and, then, and then many other things from there, but that's, that's the sort of general path for me. That's what got me to New York and that's what got me excited about data science. Interesting. So um, I think one part that I, even I missed to um, uh, sort of communicate was that you founded DataKind and, and that sort of created the social activism uh, through data science. So um, let's talk about um, your current role before we get to a uh, mm -hmm. bunch of these jewels in the past. So what do you do now and, and what's what? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, so uh, as you mentioned, I'm the founder and CEO of Alluvium. Alluvium is uh, we're we're a technology startup based in New York City, and um, what we do is build machine learning tools for men and women working in complex industrial operations. Um, what that really means at its core is, you know, we focus on how to leverage data that assets and um, operators themselves are generating when they're inside a plant when they're walking on a refinery platform. And those tools should be there to support how those men, men and women make decisions. Um, the kind of the, the typical example I like to think of is, you know, let's imagine that you're standing on an oil refinery platform and your job is an industrial engineer and you have mm -hmm. to think about, you know, where in this operation should I be spending my time either inspecting, checking, or even maintaining and repairing um, this kind of continuous volatile set of, of assets. Well, you are beset on all sides by an incredible amount of information. Each one of the, you know, pipe fixtures and gauges on that uh, oil refinery can in and of itself be generating more data than you alone would be able to uh, comprehend at any given moment. And you may have thousands or tens of thousands of these sensors emitting data all the time. And so we as a company have a very, um, we have a very sort of definitive Perspective on what the value of machine learning is in this context, and what we believe it is, is that you know there is always there always exists this kind of natural tension between having to discover novelty in these complex data sets and then having to reason about what that novelty means. And so we believe that well-designed software systems that are in place to support those decision makers should be automating away a good amount of this discovery piece because that's what you know, a well-designed AI or a well-designed learner should do. It should be able to observe a stream or multiple streams of data, build up an internal representation or model or intuition about what all those streams, what the function of all those streams are. And then when they begin to deviate from that expectation, okay, well, when we, when, then we have some, some piece of novelty. But the machine itself doesn't know what that means. It has no context for what that change may mean. It doesn't even know if it's actually a valid change. But the person, that human operator, that man or that woman who's the industrial engineer standing in that platform, they do know. Typically, they have a, at least a decade of experience, but oftentimes multiple decades of experience. And so if we can fix that tension between discovery and reasoning to the appropriate equilibrium where those interactions that an operator would have with, our, with a system that feeds them high-value information is of a high quality, that means that that, that that those alerts or that information stream is often you know, giving them valuable information, then they should be able to quickly reason about that, build you know, 
take an action or, or learn something and then create a positive feedback loop in the system, right? That that's the thing that if we build um, kind of data-driven products, there's always that feedback of, well, anytime I interact with an expert, I want to learn a little bit more about what that expert's reasoning is so that the next time I give them information, it's even more precise and even more useful mm. to them. And so at our core, that's that's how we build products. We have um, we have one flagship product in the marketplace, which we call Alluvium Primer, um, which I'd be happy to talk about more. And and as a team, you know, we are um, we are very much a kind of data science and software engineering uh, at our core. That is the vast majority of people who work at Alluvium focus on solving those kinds of problems. Interesting. And what's what's your role in that um, in, in this in this uh, Alluvium landscape? So on, uh, well, depending on who you ask, uh, for better or worse, I, I do a lot less data science these days. Um, mm -hmm. You know, my role in CEO, um, I think, kind of falls into three large buckets. Um, you know, the first one, and, and maybe the most obvious one, is you know, I set the vision for the company and our products. Um, everything that we've built has kind of come out of this core vision around doing real-time unsupervised learning from these heterogeneous streams of data and how to build products to serve folks who need to learn from that. That's that's my number one job. Um, my second biggest job is um, really on our business development side and working with our customers, mm -hmm. um, mostly because everyone else at the company is really focused on building and supporting the tools. My job is to you know work with our customers and go and find new customers that that may be interested in, in leveraging our technology. Um, and then the third piece, which I do still spend quite a bit of time on, is continuing to build out our team. Uh, we have, mm. uh, I think, developed a really um, fantastic culture as a company and, and, and what, it, what it means to work at Alluvium and how we, and how we interact with each other and interact and build our, 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 not just our tools, but our company. And so getting to be able to recruit and actually having a, a really active role in that recruitment process, I think is actually one of the, one of the proudest products that we've built as a company is, mm. is how we bring people mm. in and how we work with, with each other when they get here. Interesting. Uh, super. Um, so I think um, let's talk about data kind uh, mm -hmm. for, for a few minutes. I think one of the things that really pulled me into um, sort of al almost spamming you to come to this podcast was that, hey, um, and thank you uh, for, for being very gracious and picking of it course. and coming on the podcast. So it is, um, it's it's this idea of data kind. So if you can walk us through what data kind is and what, mm -hmm. what, you, what you guys did, and then we'll go into the nitty gritty of, of putting this thing together. Sure. Um, so what Datakind is, is a, it's, a, it's a social sector organization with a relatively straightforward mission, right? We believe that the social sector as a sort of sector of the economy uh, are going after, you know, the most challenging problems that humanity faces, you know, from uh, environmental challenges to social challenges to, um, you know, economic and, and everything in between. So within that, you have you know, men and women who are working in those industries who by their own work or mandate potentially of their you know, funding situation are producing a tremendous amount of data, right? Typically, mm -hmm. whether it's through measurement that they're doing in the field, even through instrumentation that they're using as part of their, their process, they're creating all of this data, but they have 
they have one real big problem, which is they don't have access to the world's greatest data scientists mm. because the world's greatest data scientists and software engineers and, and UI and UX developers are typically working at, you know, the, mm. the best tech firms in the world, whether it's your Googles, mm. your Facebooks and everywhere in between. That's where those folks go because that's, that's the, that's the, the economy of our market. Uh, mm. So, Datakind exists to bridge a gap between these two communities to mm. first identify the top most talented data scientists and engineers in the world and identify the most um, challenging, interesting, and most importantly, I would say technically ready social sector organizations that can, artic can, can articulate a problem that they want to data or product that they want to build with data and then we can match those two groups together um, and what in what data kind does you know they do this in many different ways um, they do it either through events which are called data dives um, they mm. do them through um, short-term projects which is through their data core group um, or they do direct consulting which they have a they have sort of an elite squad of, of data scientists and engineers that can that can directly consult with um, with social sector groups um, and the you know the Jake Porway who's the executive director he really deserves, you know, most of the credit in, in building the organization since it started. Um, you know, today it it is not just a group of us, you know, nerds sitting in a conference room, you know, tooling around on our laptops trying to help one or two social sector groups that we that we could get in contact with. It's a global organization, has chapters all over the world, and I'm proud to say continues to grow because mm -hmm. that bridge between the communities has gotten bigger, and there are lots of other organizations now that exist beyond Datakind that have a similar mm -hmm. mission. And I think in some sense, that's that's the greatest validation that the organization has had, mm -hmm. is that there's, there's so much room for this in the market that, you know, folks have, have stood up local chapters of their own kind of data science for social good work um, and, and taken that local perspective and, and made it count. Interesting. And so walk us through the initial thought of data kind, like mm -hmm. what brought you to that, that juncture of creating this, or this fixing this bridge. Mm -hmm. And then obviously we'll, I want to spend some time in digging in what it took to build that. So why don't you walk us through that yeah. initial thought and, and um, we'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. The story of Datakind is actually very much the story of sort of the New York City data community. So, mm. um, you know, as I was mentioning, when I was talking about my journey, when I got to New York, uh, I was meeting lots of different people and having an opportunity to, you know, have coffee and go to meetups and then meet all these great people, many of which now who I'm very, you know, honored to call my friends, but are also among some of the most well-known data scientists in the world. You know, Jake himself being one of them, um, but folks from the academic world, people like Chris Wiggins up at Columbia or Mark Hansen um, and, you know, uh, People like Hillary Mason, who at the time was the chief data scientist at Bitly and is now um, at Cloudera with for Fast Forward Labs Group. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and all of us were kind of interacting with each other and in the larger community. And um, eventually we got into this kind of monthly tradition of having a potluck brunch at the, at the New York Times building. So one Sunday a month, um, a group of us would get together and just have a potluck brunch uh, up towards the top of the New York Times building where the research and development 
group had their floor and that was actually where um, Jake was working at the time. Mm. And so we would typically kind of assign ourselves a topic and one week or one month, I should say, the topic was, you know, how would you teach a course in data science, right? The, the mm -hmm. folks from academia and, and I was obviously in a graduate program at the time. So I was close to the notion, you know, if I was going to mm -hmm. TA a class, what we think about? Um, and we had a great group, you know, those, the, the folks who showed up all contributed ideas to how we would teach it. Um, and, and then ultimately, Jake and I started having a, a side conversation to say, well, I think that there's there's this other problem that exists, which is where do we get interesting problems mm. for people to work on? Right? If you wanted mm. to learn about data science, how would you actually go about doing it? Because one of the hardest things about doing data science is actually finding an interesting problem mm. and then going and answering mm. it. And so we had this idea to say, well, maybe there's folks from the social sector who there's likely folks in the social sector who already have these problems kind of well-established. What they lack are, are, res are resources and access mm. to the people. Um, so we spent the next couple of weeks just um, thinking about how we could plan an event where we could get people together to do this. Um, so DataKind as an organization actually really just started as an event, which we called a data dive. We didn't even mm. really have a sense that there was going to be an organization that did it. It was sort of mm. a, data, a data dive brought to you by Jake and Drew. And we mm. used our networks to go source both people on the engineering and data science side and a handful of social sector organizations local to New York that would be interested in participating. You know, the, the first data dive, um, you know, we had the, the local chapter of the, of the ACLU. We had um, folks from the UN there um, and a handful of other groups. And we just sat at a, at a, a, in, a in an office over the weekend and did this work. Um, and, you know, I'll never forget, me and Jake kind of walked away from that just being like, wow, there's, there's a lot to this. Uh, people really, really like this. Um, let's try to do this again, but let's see if we can do it in a different city. Let's see if there's an let's see if there's an equal amount of energy outside of New York City. Um, mm. So then we began planning a uh, a data dive in San Francisco. Um, same exact format. Went out there, kicked it off. Had exactly the same um, feeling coming out of it that there was just all this energy. People were continuing to work and volunteering with the organizations well after the event had ended. Um, and so I remember it was Jake, Jake and I, and our third folks. Uh, co-founder Craig Borowski uh, we're actually sitting at the San Francisco airport waiting and you know we just kind of looked at each other and said I think this is a there's something real here we can actually go about starting this um, and that that kicked the ball rolling and we we you know ultimately went through the process of creating a nonprofit organization you know building the brand um, and in some sense the rest is history uh, you know for my part um, you know, Jake decided to 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 leave his full time job at the New York Times to do data kind full time. Craig, likewise, mm -hmm. with his job, um, I was sort of the odd man out because I was at the point of no return in my graduate program at NYU, mm -hmm. and I said, you know what, guys, I think I really want to finish this PhD. I'm not going to quit <laughs> now. Um, but I continued to be uh, heavily involved in DataKind in those early days, was, was a member of the board um, for the first few years of the organization. Um, and as I said, you know, to the credit to Jake and Craig and the rest of the team, they've built uh, an outstanding org. Interesting. Uh, by the way, thank you so much for walking us through that. So now let's talk about like uh, the grunt work of, of building something like this or mm -hmm. scaling something like DataKind. Like what are some of the findings or some of the thoughts? 
that you have. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, well, the the interesting thing about DataKind is, you know, the their their central challenge is is one of how do you build a process around sort of um, from idea to definition to product to delivery of a data science product sort of end to end, right? Because again, if you think about the two parties that are involved, you have, um, you know, eager and ambitious engineers and data scientists who want to do work, come with their own tool set and ideas of how to do stuff. And then you have deep, deep experts in a particular problem area in the social sector and they come together and they say, okay, we're going to, we're going to do this data science project and we're going to do it in three months. Let's figure out how to do that. So the biggest challenge to start is how do we create a kind of modular scalable process of going from, you know, first getting those teams together, defining what the problem is, and then beginning to build it. Um, and if anything, I think one of the most um, most amazing contributions that DataKind has made to the, to the data science community is effectively training a whole bunch of data scientists that come through their program how to think about this process because one of the things that you know is, is somewhat uh, orthogonal to this conversation but is something that i think a lot about is you know mm -hmm. how do we build a robust professional process of data mm -hmm. science i think that's a challenge that organizations big and small feel which is how do you go from you know this this sort of you know blue blue sky or at least you know a low low level earth orbit kind of idea to something that is in a product and it, mm. it doesn't exactly work in the same way that software development works, where we have a bunch of theories of management about how to go from, you know, ticket in a Jira system to delivery of a, of a feature or delivery of a product. With data science, things are a little more nebulous to start, and they can be, mm. they, it can be challenging to measure your progress along the way when people come with, you know, a specific kind of academic training or a specific kind of engineering experience or have a specific kind of bias with respect to the data that they're looking at. You know, that bias can be expertise or that bias can be ignorance. Um, and so all of those things go together. And so DataKind has developed this process of kind of building teams, tracking progress, doing check-ins, and ultimately having a, a set of measurements that they can use um, to actually be able to show the organization that they worked with, here's how things will improve and here's what we can do. And I actually think that's that's one of their their maybe their their um, least thought of but but biggest contributions to the to the folks that they work with. Interesting. And 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 what what about uh, sort of creating awareness? Like what are some of the some of the best practices that went, that you think that uh, helped you or data kind to create awareness? Like what are some yeah. of the hacks you can share? So one hack I would say is get Jake Porway to start the organization for you. <laughs> you know, Jake is a tremendously telegenic and um, and, and uh, energetic guy. And so, you know, he can get out there and he can tell a story about what the, what the organization is doing um, and speak to audiences, you know, from the C-suite on down to, you know, young young kids at schools who are thinking about, you know, what they want to do in college. Um, so that's one, but that's not maybe the most helpful one. Mm -hmm. um, I think beyond that is the strategy that, that DataKind put forward is one of kind of decoupling uh, the, the organization itself 
with the mission and where it could exist in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And so rather than having a kind of top-down approach to doing this work, one of the things that um, I know Jake and the, and the team and we thought about on the board in the early days is, you know, the things that are unique about DataKind are the the idea of connecting these communities and how to organize and how to build best practices around it. But the thing that none of us in New York will ever understand is, you know, what's important to a data science community and a social sector mm. community in southern India versus mm. a data science and social sector community in Chicago. Um, that, that that local perspective actually gives you a lot more just inside information around what that community needs and how they can leverage data. And so the chapters program that that the that data kind kind of put forward uh, a few years ago really allowed for the you know the the brand and the mission of DataKind to be separate from the local folks building that community and mm. implementing it. Um, and, and and so I think that that was the that was really the and you know and being able to identify leaders within that community who mm. wanted to step up and actually take a role in building that community. Because as I'm sure you know, you know wherever you go in the world you will find that there is you know big and small communities of leaders who who are who are looking to build out their kind of data science community um, mm. and so what we were able to do is kind of recognize where in the world were were some really strong anchors for that and then try to build data kind chapters there um, because you know vo volunteer it, it's easy to 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 work on a project remotely um, but if you actually feel the impact of that project in your own community you're much more likely mm. to want to contribute Interesting. I think, thank you so much for walking us through that. That's, that's really, really helpful. And I think one thing that, that, that we see a lot and, and we have someone with analytics club, some somewhat similar story on, on sort of figuring out that New York is totally different from Minnesota is totally different from Tuscaloosa. Mm -hmm. Like they all have their own local flavor. And then how can you sort of replicate a culture that that's local to that particular. And one of the interesting parallel um, that I want to discuss with you is big enterprises building up a data science practice. Like initially there was a hoopla around, hey, it's a data scientist. Then they're realizing now it's a data science they mm -hmm. have to fix. That means there needs to be people involved. There needs to be cultural share, sharing involved, collaboration involved with all that. So one of the many times I, I, I told these guys, I said, look at these phenomena like data kinds or say analytics club or whatever, like these frameworks in which they they were able to scale somewhat in, 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 in some some more cultures and and sort of getting the local flavor out mm -hmm. in in common common uh, contributing so what's your thoughts about uh, if i'm if i'm an enterprise of x size and plus or uh, mid to large size enterprise and i'm trying to build a sustainable data science practice what are some of the thoughts that you could drawing the parallel from data kind experience and your journey so far that you could suggest uh, these folks yeah um so the easiest place to start um, is to first ask yourself, you know, you're an executive at an, at an organization and you say, okay, I want to build a data science practice. The first thing to do is, is get all your product managers in the room and say, you know, have them make a case for why data science as a discipline is actually necessary for that product to grow or for that business to grow. Because the, the one thing that I've seen consistent across the board from startups to fortune 500 companies is that you know because data science 
I would say even now continues to have a fair amount of buzziness around it. People have a knee-jerk reaction to say, okay, this is something that I can bring into the organization. And then voila, we have a sort of magical transformation of competency. Um, unfortunately, that if a company actually doesn't need data science to be successful or build a product, then that will that will just be a, a failure of resource allocation and will taint the organization for many you know, years potentially beyond that, where they may actually have, have, have had success building something. So the, you know, the, there's lots of examples of where you can bring technology to bear on a, on a company, even a company say that that is a relatively old business, like in New York City, the one that always comes to mind is the real estate business, right? New York City, mm. you know, most competitive real estate market and, you know, one of the most competitive real estate markets in the US. And so there's lots of technology companies around who want to build products that will kind of make that more data driven. But, you know, just as an example, and this is just a hypothetical, but let's imagine that you want to build a product that's that's going to make it easier for you know someone in New York to find the right real estate that they're looking for. Um, that could be a data science project, but mm. probably what it really is is just a, a, a data engineering project. How do I make mm. this data set more searchable? How do I make it more uh, amenable to a person wanting to look for something? So that's that's one place to start. So that that's sort of like the big first bucket is like, do I actually think I want to do data science in my organization? Uh, and then once you've gotten past that question, the next question is, you know, what kind of data science and data scientists and organization do I want to build? Um, a good friend of mine um, who's actually a, a, one of the head data scientists at Slack, a guy named Josh Wills, has this great metaphor, you know, which is, are you a lab data scientist or are you a mechanic data scientist? Right, mm. and 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 the and the and the and the sort of break between these two, which I find to be really really helpful, is that you know, are you doing research and development at the mm. kind of edge of what your organization's needs to do, or is the thing that you're building kind of fundamental to how the business makes money? Right? Do you mm. build? Are you contributing to how the product actually? develops and, and ultimately grows the business because those are very different and the way that you would build those teams are very different and the, and the expectations of their contribution would be really different. The problems that I often see is that organizations who, who need a mechanical data scientist will be seduced by the the academic credentials and the the idea of these kind of big pie in the sky problem solves that they that they see out in the marketplace data science could solve and they kind of do it exactly backwards, right? So if you're a lab data scientist and you're, you're working on large, long-term R&D projects, well, that means that the organization up front has made, it, has made a commitment to, um, you know, potentially losing money for experimentation, right? It's called research and development, and research often fails, right? The reality is vast majority of organizations are not constituted well to do this, right? There are, there's, there's Lockheed Martin and Google and maybe a handful of other companies in the world that can really say, yes, we, we're, we can spend millions and millions of dollars a year on experimental software and research and development projects um, because that's what distinguishes us in the marketplace and that's what allows us to attract you know, some of the world's leading scholars to come work on this stuff. Um, the much more companies need to look for this kind of mechanical data scientist. And so mm. what that means to me is you have to have a really good, idea about how bounded the problem is that your company is trying to solve with data right so i'll take alluvium as the example right we 
Um, our fundamental unit of analysis as a business is a time series data set, right? So it's mm -hmm. a value with a timestamp associated with it. Everything else beyond that is metadata and we can build a system that analyzes it, but we are not looking for someone with deep, you know, natural language processing expertise. We are not mm -hmm. looking for someone with deep, um, you know, uh, experience building recommender systems. Right? That's just not the thing that that we're looking for. We're looking for folks who who you know have experience with time series data, but more importantly, kind of think about problems with time as a as a big dimension within that analysis. And so, mm. oftentimes, you know, when I see companies writing, let's say, a job spec for mm. a data scientist, they focus a lot on the academic credentials. You need to have a PhD or equivalent in computer science, blah, 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 which, by the way, I wouldn't qualify for. Um, mm. And then they, they spend a lot of time talking about, um, you know, what data science, you know, what data science is or, or, or how it fits in the organization. But they don't actually talk about, like, what is the problem that someone wants mm. to solve? What tools will they be using? How will they be expected to contribute to the business? And so, you know, the last thing I'll say in this and, and want to answer any questions, but, it's, you know, when I'm talking to younger, um, you know, kind of earlier career folks who are, you know, either making the transition from academia to industry or want to jump in and start as a junior data scientist, you know, I always tell folks, you know, ask the company that's hiring you, you know, what is what is the thing that you want me to do in my, say, first week or two weeks? What do you want me to know? Because oftentimes when you start a new job, particularly in kind of technical role, that first few weeks is really just, okay, here's here's how this company does its work. Here's the tools that I'm expected to use. And if you hear back from them and it sounds like tools that you either know already or are interested in learning, then that's a good fit. But then the next question should be, okay, what is like the first big project that you want me to contribute to? What is the thing that you think you want me to build? Um, and A, if the company can't answer that question in a, in a fairly succinct way, well, then that's a red flag to me because it means have they actually thought about why they want to hire you beyond the fact that they want to be able to tell people they have a data science team. That's, that's often a red flag. But also, is what you're building contributing to the part of the business that makes money? Because if it's not contributing to the part of the business that makes money, you always run the risk of you know, having a, having a negative experience as a data scientist because the thing that you're building can, you know, ultimately be looked at as, oh, that's an interesting toy or that's useful blog post mm. for marketing, but that's not actually contributing to the business. And I've seen a lot of data scientists who are extremely smart um, mm. actually end up, you know, getting let go from groups, not because they mm. weren't good at what they did, but because ultimately the business decided, you know what, we don't we don't need this kind of data scientist. So um, probably a longer answer than you're looking for, but it's something we, th we certainly think a lot about. Interesting. No, I think that's a that's a extremely valid point. And I think so uh, in our conversation, we, we talk to like a lot of businesses and we see two very common problem where the, the data science is failing. So I think, and you put it the best in the data kind of example that, so one is the, one is one bucket is the problem bucket. So it has a problem the data science could solve. The other is the talent bucket. That they, these are data scientists that could solve probably anything. So many times you see either businesses who over recruit a data science and then trying to say, now look, now I have people, now try, try to look for the problem. And in some, some cases they say, hey, I have like amazing business problem that I'm trying to, I'm struggling with. Uh, now let me find talent uh, to solve that problem. In both the cases, we see sort of this struggle of either getting the talent or getting the business compliance on sort of, I have folks, they're, they're, they're sitting idle, how can they be busy? So 
now drawing the parallel from data kind like what if i need to hire that particular first person and if i am that first person trying to build up a data science practice within this company what are some of the things of one to three tactical steps that you could suggest me that i could do uh, to sort of merge these two worlds together so so as the if you're well i think you know honestly i think a, a big part of it starts with how a company builds its recruitment process right so um i think you know as 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 i think i mentioned before you know one of the things that i'm most proud of at alluvium but i think one of the things that i've focused a lot on in this more recent part of my career where i've spent more time managing people and teams and less time contributing as a data scientist it's thinking about that recruitment process as a product in and of itself um and i'm happy to go into more detail here but i think the you know at a top level one of the things that I think is really broken with how data scientists get recruited is mm. you know, most of the recruitment process focus on kind of uh, technical minutia and um, you know coding exercises or whiteboarding exercises and, and really searching searching an infinite space for what someone doesn't know mm. versus trying to search a bounded space of here's how we actually do work at this company. Here's what the problems mm -hmm. look like. And let's try to see how you would work through this problem as an individual. Um, so we often, you know, we, what we talk about is, you know, there's, there's always asymmetry in a, in an interview process. If I'm interviewing you to work at my company, I already know a bunch, I already know as much as there is to know about what it's mm -hmm. like to work at Alluvium. And you mm -hmm. might know just a tiny little bit. And the mm. entire exercise of us kind of bringing you through an interview is one in which mm. you're giving us a bunch of information and we're trying mm. to use our kind of heuristic mm. to say, oh, well, that fit into mm. how we work here. And to me, that's such a lossy process is why mm. don't you actually have a person kind of go through how work the work that they would do if they were actually going to do this job uh, at Alluvium. And so we take this we take this approach really from beginning to end. And, you know, in some sense, we may be an extreme version of this where, you know, right from the initial conversation to an offer, every step of the way, we want to be able to match you to how that job is doing. You know, the interview process, I think, is, 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 the mo is maybe the most important place to start. And so figuring out how to build a process in which, you know, that asymmetry that I mentioned between the interviewer and you is reduced as much as possible, right? There's always going to be an asymmetry where the company is going to know more and obviously there, there, there's there's a power dynamic there but how we feel is if a person walks away from an interview with us and they say i, re I really have a good idea of what it would be like to work at this company what yeah. what i would be doing then that has been a very successful interview for us because what that means is if we as an organization decide that we want this person to work with us then it should be very easy for us to get to a way forward, right? If that mm. person walks away and says, I really know what I would be doing there and I think I want to do it and we give them an offer, then we can move forward really quickly. And then also when they get to work, we know, okay, you're ready to contribute at a high level. We've already had this mm. conversation versus the other way, which is, well, I think you know how to you know, specify normal distribution at the whiteboard um, and you can do this um, you know, linked list uh, evaluation in a coding exercise but okay here's actually the work that you're going to do and now let's figure out if you like it um that's that i think is is really uh problematic and so we've really focused a lot on that at alluvium and i have to say 
you know, it, it's not, uh, it, it's certainly not without its faults. And we've, we've worked really hard to evolve and, and, and maintain a, a high level of quality there and has required some changing. Um, but I think if an organization isn't kind of continually trying to, to do that, they're missing on a big opportunity. Interesting. And uh, and thank you so much for walking us through that. I think one of the one another parallel that I, I find really fascinating, and I want your perspective on is, um, so there's another perspective in building a team. So there is a business problem there, and there are people who could solve it. And then there's a data uh, mm-hmm. in the data science space that enabling uh, at least if if there's no data, then both of the things are moved pretty much right. So many businesses who successfully either employ a, a, a good problem stack or they employ a good problem talent pool they struggle with sort of getting the data um, mm. and getting the compliance because there's a whole another ginormous behemoth called IT. And then they have to deal with IT to sort of get this data and some data is dirty, some whatever, right? Yep. Things happen. So what's your perspective on what are some of the hacks that that all these three could be streamlined together? And, and then right. you give a very good perspective on how to get a talent pool and, and, and bringing all the uh, product managers together to talk about the, the business problems. Now let's talk like how how you can get data. Like what are yeah. some of the best practices that you? Um, I I I I feel a lot of uh, empathy for this. Um, you know, certainly in my own career, having started mm. in the U.S. national security world, where you know arguably is the largest bureaucratic organization on planet mm. Earth, and so having I certainly have a lot of experience there. And then more recently with some of the other things that I've done, I think the best metaphor that I that I can think. of it was actually one that was explained to me as a as a young PhD student thinking about writing a dissertation. I remember, one of my professors in one of our seminars, um, he went to the whiteboard and he drew, you know, as as big as he could, he drew a circle around the whiteboard, hmm. and he said, "This is the universe of all the problems that you could think about, you know, addressing in the social sciences." Hmm. And then he said, you know, and then he took his he took a mark he took a very very thin marker and he just put a little dot in the middle, you know, somewhere in the middle of that circle. And they filled in about a centimeter around it. Mm-hmm. And he said, if you can write a dissertation on this dot and then build a career around this circle, you'd be very successful academic. Um, wow. <laughs> and so I think, you know, the, the way that that metaphor applies in, in business is that you will always be up against the challenge of whether it's a large IT organization or it's internal legal structures, you know, people, people, it's much easier for people to say no to you than to say yes. Um, And so what you want to do is you want to start really, really small. um, And if anything, you want to leverage any known problems that already exist in the organization, like articulated problems that exist in the organization that you think data may be able to solve for. and, and actually, one of my favorite examples of this is, is from local government. So this is not a data mm-hmm. kind project, but it was mm-hmm. when I was working um, as a, an advisor to the mayor's office here in the city for their data analytics group. Um, and, and Mike Flowers, who was the first chief data analytics officer, I think understood this in, an, in, in, a, um, in, in a very intuitive way um, because he was a lawyer and, be, mm. and because he wasn't really a technologist, but what he really understood is how do you get bureaucracies to, to adopt change? And so mm. he, basi- he basically had two rules, right? His one rule was, you know, find the, find the most acute problem in an organization and see what data exists there and mm. never change how, you know, never change how someone does their work, just mm. change how effective they are at doing it. And so with those rules, what the project that that really put them on the map was 
changing how the fire department in New York does its building inspections, right? Mm -hmm. There was an acute problem within the fire department of not being, uh, of having very low um, success rates or hit rates in terms of identifying uh, building problems when they would go out in their inspections, right? Because if you work in a, if, you, if you're the building inspector for some engine house in New York City, the way that it used to be is that you showed up to work, there was a stack of papers on your desk, and that stack of papers was essentially ordered in either some random or some semi-sequential way of here's all the buildings that you should go inspect today. And so that's a budget constraint that the city has. Mm -hmm. And so there are only so many inspectors that can go out. And if you don't have any mm -hmm. smart way of kind of allocating that resource, then your success will almost certainly be worse than it could be if you had a, a more um, deliberate way of inspecting stuff. So what Mike said is he said, well, I know that the city of New York has a tremendous amount of data on mm -hmm. every building, right? Obviously, the fire department has in built mm -hmm. as, as data, but the Department of Building has data. Mm -hmm. The Department of Finance knows what buildings have liens on them and what their financial mm -hmm. records are. The Department of Sanitation knows if they have any violations of the of the waste code, which can be correlated with you know things like overpopulation or illegal conversions. Um, we have three one one data, which has things like noise complaints and has other um, you know unsightly kinds of plates, which again themselves can be associated with building issues. And so what he said is all we want to do is we want to be able to, you know, rank buildings based on the likelihood mm. that something is going wrong there. And so if you put all that data together and literally just do a simple logistic regression, you can get a lot, you know, a likelihood that a building will have an issue with it. And that simple idea became mm. what is now the risk, what's called the risk-based mm. inspection system in New York. Mm. And so, you know, taking that kind of big circle to little one, there's an infinite circle of problems that a large metropolitan area like New York City could think about solving with data. Mike said, let's solve one little problem. And in fact, we're not going to change at all how, how building inspectors do their work, right? Because mm. we'll never know everything there is to know about how to do building inspecting. All we'll do is when that building inspector shows up to work, the list of buildings that they go after is rank ordered in likelihood of their success, right? So actually taking that in mind and saying, what, what will make you most successful? And that's probably the third most important thing that's not on, on Mike's list, but that mm. I learned is like, if you want to have success in, in a large organization where, you know, there may be challenges of getting data, figure out what makes your customer or your colleague more successful. Mm -hmm. You know, what, you know, in a, in a corporate setting, like how do they, what gets them a bigger bonus, right? What makes mm -hmm. their boss happy? You know, in a public, in a public setting, you know, what makes taxpayer dollars allocated more efficiently? What's going to make the mayor happy? What's going to make the chief of, you know, the, the, the fire chief happy. Um, mm -hmm. If you appreciate that stuff, then you can find those little dots in the circle and find the data that's in there. And then I think you will find a, a willing audience to share data if they know that what you're doing is hmm. only there to help them. Interesting. That's an interesting point. So so you are suggesting that uh, uh, get the bosses happy, uh, get their buy-ins. So at yeah. least you can you can do something. Okay. Yeah. And I, you know, I would even, I mean, it may be the bosses happy. But it's like, what makes the individual happy, right? Because mm -hmm. we were making, or Mike and the team was making um, building inspectors happy because when they would mm -hmm. go to buildings, they would mm. find violations, right? It would make mm. them look like they were, you know, it would make them make, not look like, but it would make it would make them more successful in their job, which is before they'd show up and maybe they wouldn't find anything. And so they'd walk away where, you know, the citizen would feel inconvenienced because a building inspector showed up and there was nothing wrong. The building inspector would feel like they wasted time and the city of New York would have just spent a whole bunch of taxpayer dollars to get nothing. Interesting. 
so um thank you so much for your mm-hmm. for your perspective on that so now let's let's talk about uh, those anxious group of data scientists uh, who are about to lose their job maybe uh, in this hypothetical of there's there's overhiring and that they don't have a business case to sort of grapple with or or solve their value on ROI on what do you suggest to those guys um, or gals uh, what what are some of the things that they could do to sort of prove their worth and value in in, in an organization yeah and i again i think it comes back to you know so if you've already in the position of you started to work at a company and maybe you didn't get an opportunity to ask that question around you know does my work contribute directly to how this company makes money well mm. now you're there you're finding that your data science team is kind of off in the corner doing its own thing and you start to see uh, you know the cfo is kind of sticking his head in or her head in and saying wait what are you guys doing in here um you know get back and ask your bosses or ask the product managers what what are your what are your top 3 goals for this quarter like what are the things that you that you want to be successful in or that need to get better this quarter and particularly if you're working at a technology company it is almost certainly the case that one or all three of those answers will have some data question at the center of it right if it's a you know if it's an e-commerce site and they're worried about churn or they're worried about you know fulfillment that's a data problem mm-hmm. and you can say okay well let's figure out a project that we can do in 6 weeks something that we can do quickly to turn around and show value because i there there is this there is a tension of time oftentimes mm-hmm. the thing that that kind of fouls people up in um in data science is that there's because if it has this kind of r&d flavor people may be inclined to let a data scientist work for months and months and months and months and then voila they 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 show this you know interesting insight or they generate this report that says oh here's what you could have done mm-hmm. um but it's never obvious okay how am i actually building a product around that but if you start mm-hmm. and you say okay what is the problem that you need solved okay we want to reduce churn okay let's build a 6 week project that instruments the website in a way that we can understand, you know, why people are leaving and then mm. build a simple fix or make a simple recommendation to how we think we can reduce that. And if you can do that within, you know, a 4 to 6 week time period, I think you know, you will start to show obvious value to a business as to how they can improve. I think that's that's fabulous and and definitely really really useful. So, uh we're almost at the tail end of the conversation and and I I I sort of uh remind that sort of I I'm I'm thinking about that we're not talking about alluvium and iot so I I I think I would definitely want to have you over um, and there will be a part 2 and we will talk about it and because I think that's another really interesting topic that I want to talk about and then we had a as 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 slight previous conversation and want to sort of mm-hmm. focus on on that as well it's a very very topic near and dear to our heart so uh, in your journey let's talk let's spend few minutes on you and then uh, uh, I'll I'll let you I'll let you go so in your journey so far what are some of the some of the traits that has helped you uh, stay sane through mm-hmm. this progression uh, of uh, managing these big uh, conversations and dialogues and and workflows and and and, and company like data kind if you can walk us through that yeah um first i appreciate um you thinking that i re- i've kept my sanity i think not everybody would would uh, necessarily <laughs> agree with that um but let's see that's that's a really good question and and kind of a big one so yeah. i think um there's there's a couple of things for me personally that have been really really valuable um in in doing this you know one of them for me really is 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 really having kind of deep humility for what i don't know 
Um, mm -hmm. I actually think that's one of the most important, I think it's an important trade for anybody, uh, mm -hmm. but certainly for someone who's working with data all the time, you know, I mentioned it before, mm -hmm. having a deep sense of humility around your own ignorance and in particular having a skeptical eye towards where questions come from, where data comes from, all these kinds mm -hmm. of questions. Um, will be really valuable guiding principles for how you do your work. And so for mm -hmm. me, I've tried to apply that, you know, in my role now in a leadership role to think about, okay, I'm, I'm building a company. I have to build a team around it. Um, even at Alluvium, you know, one of our values as a company is what we call you lead with humility. Everybody at the mm -hmm. business is expected to be a leader within their own, within the own, own context of their work. And for me, you know, as the, as the head of the company, I want to build a team around me that effectively complements me and everyone else mm. because we have mm. to be able to be humble about what we don't know and find people that that know things that that we don't and we can hopefully teach them things that they don't know about their business. So I've 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 been very fortunate in that I've I've been successful in actually finding those people and, and having a chance to work with some folks for for a really long time um, that that share that trait and that's really important. Um, I think the other thing for me that that has been really valuable in going through this is is the support of the community here in New York. Um, mm -hmm. I think that New York City um, isn't is an is a very unique place to build technology companies, but in particular build data science companies. Um, you know, I've said this before in other in other mediums. I think New York City has some of the most um, you know valuable natural resources for mm -hmm. data science that that don't exist anywhere else, right? Whether it's the university system for generating talent, whether it's the anchor industries here that are all really data-driven, you know, again, finance, media, entertainment, all of these things, you know, advertising, all these things that, that have always been data-driven. Um, and then really the geography of New York too, being all mm. kind of crammed in in this island or these five boroughs, it allows for the development of a really, really rich community that I think, you know, having, I've been all, you know, I've been all over the country, I've been all over the world and seen some wonderful communities, but, but none of which are, are the same as, as my hometown. Um, and, you know, I guess if there was a third one for me, it's, it's kind of a, an appetite for learning. I think, you know, mm -hmm. you have to, you have to always seek to learn new things, seek to try to identify, you know, you know, whether it's a new tool set or a new methodology or a new industry and new problems. Again, for me, I've, I've been fortunate because I've, my career has very much been kind of, I've been very lucky because I've kind of got to decide which kinds of problems I wanted to work on and see how mm -hmm. data science could be applied to those. Uh, and so, you know, that has really helped, you know, I think reinforced for me the value of always kind of being willing to to get out there and learn from other folks. Interesting, well said. Uh, let let's. So one more thing we ask all of our speaker is their favorite read. And um, do you have a favorite read that you can share with our with, with our community? Yeah. So one of my mm. favorite books of all time is a book called um, Godel Escherbach, The Golden Braid. Um, mm. It's uh, it's it's really a philosophy book. Um, and the central idea of the book, and you probably can tell from the from the title, mm -hmm. is about how mathematics, art, and music are all intertwined with each other. Mm. Um, and I was I was gifted this book um, at, at a relatively young age, and I remember just consuming it. You know, just just reading it. Um, it's one of these books where you can, you don't really have to read it in a linear fashion. You can kind of open to mm. any page, and and there'll be these these um, kind of essays on stuff. Um, and I think either consciously or subconsciously, it really kind of 
instilled in my in my psyche the value of interdisciplinary learning that mm. you know that there's this kind of fundamental interconnectedness of human reasoning and it can manifest itself in lots of different ways you know Godel was a brilliant mathematician, Escher was mm. an amazing artist, and Bach was a virtuoso with, with music. But at the core of it were lots of the same ideas and lots of the same mm. skills. And, and so thinking about how we can take all of the take these kinds of skills and apply them in different ways um, really had an outside impact on me. And it, it's a book that um, I love to share with people um, if they've never read it. Interesting. And thank you so much for, for sharing that with us. Uh, now, as a we're almost at the end of the conversation. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Andrew, again, thank you so much for, for uh, with your time. Extremely candid and sharing your perspective. It's really, really useful for our, for our viewers and listeners. So as a uh, parting thought, do you have any closing remark uh, that you want to give to our listeners and viewers who, is, who are still watching and, and trying to understand what they should do? So do you have anything for them? Yeah, I you know I think for for people who are listening who you know are right at the beginning of their journey. Um, you know, there's a couple things that that I highly recommend. Um, one of them, which is I think hardest for folks in the early part of their career, is get yourself out there. Like one of the most valuable things that I did when I was starting my my PhD program was to you know just start kind of blogging and tweeting about what I was working on. I had no preconception that there were going to be other people in the world who cared about kind of computational approaches to social science or computational approaches to um, you know international relations and conflict study. But what I found out is that there were actually a bunch of people, and moreover, there are a bunch of other people who were using these tools that I could learn from. Um, so that was, you know, as I often tell people, you know, get yourself a GitHub account, put your work mm -hmm. online, you will find that people will come knocking on your door and uh, and and in most of the most cases you'll have very positive interaction um, as a kind of uh, to kind of dovetail that the other thing that I think is really important for for folks is um, to actually get out and talk about what you're doing mm -hmm. um, and I know even myself you know folks are introverted they don't like to get out and give talks and, and be in front of meetups but a central hack there is if you put yourself in front of the stage, then you don't have to spend a lot of energy going around and networking. People will come to you. And that I think is a really, it kind of flips the script. And so, you know, there's some nerves that you have to get over, but if you've worked really hard on something and you put it on GitHub and you feel confident about it, go see if you can talk about it at a meetup and get, get some people to, to ask questions because it'll help build your network and it'll help you meet new people. And, and for me, that was one of the most important things. Um, you know, and for folks in business, you know, you know, senior or, or, or contributing, I think again, you know, look at that recruiting process. How do you how do you build your team? And and then you know the one the one question that's outstanding for me, which I'd love to hear from folks about, is you know what is your theory of of management within a data science organization? Mm. You know, as I mentioned before, I think that is something that we as a discipline are going to have to figure out here over the course of the next couple of years because mm. data science as a role has been around long enough that you have people who are kind of in that part of their career where they're thinking about moving into a more senior role but what does mm. it mean to be a data science manager right what does that career path look like what are what are what are our expectations for those folks um, so maybe with that I'll say you know I'm I'm easy to get in contact with um, my Twitter handle is just Drew Conway, at Drew Conway, all one word. Um, easy to email me as well. It's just Drew at DrewConway.com. Um, and so would love to hear from folks um, about that. And uh, maybe I'll just leave it there. Beautiful. Again, Drew, thank you so much uh, with your time and 
uh, we enjoyed having you on, on on the podcast it was really really nice uh, i was mesmerized and i definitely it's a, it's a topic that i want to cover and thank you so much for being generously helping us through that i definitely want to cover even the iot piece and your journey as a startup entrepreneur building a data science company in iot space uh, but that i'll 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 i'll, I'll get you for that as mm-hmm. well I, but so thank you so much again and uh, wish you nothing but success in your journey and love to have you back uh, and do good luck and, and in 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 your amazing journey thank you vishal it was it was great talking with you and i look forward to doing it again awesome uh, i thought i was sick of home but actually i was homesick never really knew that i would have to grow up so quick i'm so uncomfortable don't know anybody here just a couple dudes that i met once that's it and i go into the booth feeling nervous got butterflies in my stomach like i'm so worthless is the mic gone i don't know how to work this inside i'm breaking down i hope i'm not up on this